This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Welcome back to Ask the Expert. Today's topic is such a great one because we're focusing on one of those fascinating pre-Tudor figures whose life seems to be kind of like a made-up soap opera. Too dramatic and fantastical to even be real sometimes. But it was... And we are speaking today, of course, about Eleanor of Aquitaine. And here with us today, I have lawyer and historian Sarah Cockrell. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Steph. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for asking me. So before we get started, how did you become an expert on this amazing woman? What got you started? Well, Eleanor is one of those people whose story is always out there. And I was really interested in her, I think, before I started writing history. And I'd read all the novels about her and all the biographies about her. Then I researched and wrote about one of her descendants, Eleanor of Castile. And Eleanor of Aquitaine kind of loomed over the story somewhat as a great influence. So when my publishers said, who do you want to write about next?, um, it was obvious that it had to be Eleanor of Aquitaine. I mean, it's an offer you couldn't refuse, right? I, I'm, I mean, I'm happy that you did it <laughs> because she's someone that we all love that we all love reading about, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, highly controversial, highly interesting, and her story is, you know, it's got a lot of really interesting true stuff, and then there's all the lies that have got told about her since. Oh, I can't wait to get to all of those. Okay, let's get started then. She was born in, correct me if I'm wrong here, 1122? 24. Or around there? Yeah. Well, we did. 24. So close. Um, So close. Okay. So what was her, what was her upbringing like? Who, who were her parents? Did she have brothers and sisters? Let's start out right at the very beginning with her childhood. Okay. So the very beginning is that we, we know who her parents are. We know who her grandparents are. And that's about all we know about her childhood. So when I said 1124, that's actually my best guess for her birth date. So her father was one of the many Williams of Aquitaine. Um, it was essentially a family name. Um, her mother was Ino um, of Chatellerault, who was the daughter of Eleanor's grandfather's mistress, um, which is a kind of complicated relationship. But anyway, so Eleanor is the child of these two people. Um, she had one brother 
who is often forgotten, who ought really to have succeeded. But he died young at the same time as her mother did. And she also had a sister um, who is often called Petronilla, but was actually christened Elis, like Alice. Um, and she was, we don't know much about her upbringing, but we can be pretty sure that she was educated in a church school because you can find a picture of a ring that she later gave to somebody who was at school with her, who was a child who went on to become a monk. And that's about all we know. <laughs> well, it, people often say that, oh, she was brought up in the, you know, in the Languedoc and she would have spoken Occitan rather than Northern French. Um, probably not. Her parents' lands spanned Occitan, but also an area where northern French was spoken. Most of her childhood would have been in Poitiers, which was outside the Occitan region. She probably spoke and understood Occitan, but her first language was probably northern French. Uh, so, but again, we don't know that. Her grandfather was a um, was the first of the troubadours. Her father was not so much of a patron of the troubadours, but was a little bit of a patron of the troubadours. Uh, her grandfather was very anti-religious, and her father was also um, had a lot of controversy with the church. He was very religious, but picked the wrong side. So he ended up being excommunicated for a number of years. And that would have been quite a big thing within her childhood. And other than that, I, you know, there is there are no records at all. Then we know that she was because I think you said it was a brother that had passed mm -hmm. older. So she was the oldest between her and her sister. And so therefore, when her father died, at, <clears throat> excuse me, when her father died, um, she then would inherit the land of Aquitaine. Is that correct? Well, yes. I mean, it's, it's actually quite interesting. I mean, first of all, nobody expected him to die when he did. He died quite young. Um, and she almost certainly didn't expect to inherit right when she did. She would have inherited the title. There would have been an expectation that her sister would inherit some lands, but in the event, uh, that doesn't seem to have happened. She and her sister were simply scooped up by the King of France, um, and all of Eleanor's lands were effectively taken over by France. So after she was scooped up then by the King of France, there's this is when she is then betrothed to his son. Yes. Louis. Is that correct? Yeah. So then can you tell us a little bit about her life under the guardianship of the King of France? Well, there was practically no guardianship period because um, almost as soon as her father died, there was a very lucky discovery of a will um, leaving her to the guardianship of the King of France, which may or may not have been a genuine document. I tend to the view that it wasn't. Um, but he was the obvious person to have control of who she married. And because of the extent of her land, he decided the best person for her to marry was his son. He sent his son off down to Bordeaux to marry Eleanor. Eleanor couldn't leave Bordeaux because she was, one historian calls her a walking title deed. She effectively had to be kept um, under guard until somebody married her and was able to look after her property for her. 
So Louis, Louis um, the son of the King of France, was sent down to marry her. He, he had pretty much no sooner married her than his father died. So she and Louis became king and queen of France in their teens. And just a quick aside, it's important to notice to note this for a little bit later in the conversation, but how did Louis and Eleanor know each other and were they related in any way? <laughs> um, so they didn't know each other before they got married. They would have had maybe two days, three days before the wedding to get to know each other. Of course, that wasn't that uncommon, but um, not ideal. Um, Yes, they were related, fairly distantly related. But at this point, the church was taking a very hardline view about the degree within which couples could properly be related. And they were technically too closely related to be married without the permission of the Pope. And nobody bothered to get that permission at that point. So, um, so yes, age. Aha, so listeners, remember that point <laughs> for later. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, you know, in their early mid teens, Eleanor and Louis are launched upon life as king and queen of France. Louis, it's worth just mentioning, Louis was not supposed to have been king, just like Eleanor wasn't supposed to have been Duchess of Aquitaine. Louis had had an elder brother who had died in an unfortunate accident with, you couldn't make this one up, a runaway pig. Um, and Louis had been actually being prepared for a career in the church, and he was then hauled out of you know his church school. In fact, he was living in a monastery um, to be sort of junior king. Um, and so he had he and Eleanor had had a lot of personal upheaval in their sort of late childhood, early teens, both of them. That sounds so much like the story from um, Game of Thrones. All these, all those little bits are taken from from things that really happened, and it's because these stories are so crazy. Just like you just said, you, yeah. you can't even make them up. So, okay, so now he's the king uh, because his brother was killed by a runaway pig, <laughs> and they are now king and queen together. So now we do have a question about. The Count Theobald of Champagne, is that someone that played a role in Louis's life and then therefore in Eleanor's life as well? Who was that? Yeah, so Count Theobald of Champagne was probably the greatest of the French nobles at the time. He was somebody who Louis's father had been able to keep under control, but he was a bit much for Louis in his teens, new to kingship, never designed for kingship. Essentially, Louis found him, Louis and Eleanor found themselves kind of dealing with three very powerful personalities. Um, one was um, Abbot Suger, who had been Louis's father's first minister, who was the sort of most prominent churchman of, of the day. The second was a cousin of his father's, Ralph of Vermandois. Um, who was a, a very distinguished soldier and diplomat. And the third was Count Theobald of Champagne, who, whose family owned Champagne and Blois and that area, um, and who descended from a daughter of William the Conqueror, who was a very formidable lady and um, imbued a number of her children with some of her formidable characteristics. And he, so 
Theobald of Champagne, Ralph of Vermandois, and Abbot Suger were effectively jostling for priority while at the same time Louis was trying to make his mark as a king. You had mentioned that Louis was preparing himself to be more of um, have a his occupation kind of with the church rather than preparing to be king. So what what was his relationship with the Pope and with his religion after he did become king? Yes, that's really interesting because, of course, the Pope was thrilled when Louis became king, you know, had the highest possible hopes because they had essentially had Louis for his early childhood and thought that he would be a really good son of the church. But funnily enough, you know, it's it's rather like the story that we later come to with Thomas Beckett. You put somebody in a different position and their priorities shift. And so Louis becomes much more com- much more obsessed with the royal power because the French king had very little land and very little power. And one of the biggest handicaps on the French king's power was the church. And so he walked straight into all the fights that other kings were having too with the church at this time about the right to nominate people to bishoprics um, and the right to um, crown a king and so forth. I mean, there were just a number of things where the church was saying, this is our area, stay out of it. And the kings were saying, well, look, we're consecrated monarchs. We have a quasi-religious role and we must be allowed to nominate bishops. And of course, if you nominate bishops, you can to an extent control them. And that is why both parties wanted that control. So so very quickly, uh, Louis and the Pope got um, on bad terms. And the Pope wrote in really blistering terms saying, what a terrible disappointment you've been. You know, I thought you were going to be a, a son of the light and, and you have turned out to be about the worst king I could have imagined. And, you know, words to that effect. It was all really quite bitter. And one, one of the areas in which there was a degree of... Um, of bitterness was also that Louis backed the marriage of Eleanor's sister to Ralph of Vermandois, a marriage which was put together in a highly dubious manner with Ralph's divorce from the sister of Theobald of Champagne um, being sorted out by a hand-picked court of bishops, who all of whom owed their position to Louis. Here sounds like the beginning of the end. Louis is, is notoriously not a great king, not a great husband. So here we go watching this unfold now. And if we can move forward to the siege at Vitry, how did that lead now to Louis and Eleanor's participation in the Crusades? And then even after that, just kind of the demise of their marriage. Yes, well, the, the demise of their marriage is, is a long story, but the Vitry episode is, is very emblematic because it brings together a lot of things. It brings together the, um, the bad relationship with Theobald of Champagne. So he'd gone off essentially to war against Theobald of Champagne. Um, Theobald, this was all linked to a quarrel with the Pope. Um, as well. And during the course of this argument with Theobald of Champagne, he ended up torching um, the town of Vitry, including the church into which the the local people had gone for refuge. 
And it was seen as the most terrible, terrible thing to do. Um, and Louis was extraordinarily upset by it, as, as you would be. Everybody told him he'd committed a massive sin. He was excommunicated for a period of time. And both to mend his relationship with the church, but also genuinely, I think, to um, to gain a form of absolution and also to try and gain divine favour on the marriage, which was not giving rise to any sons after a number of years of, of marriage. Um, when the news came that there was a call for people to join the Second Crusade, um, it just seemed like the right thing to Louis, and he embraced it with a degree of fervour. Um, and Eleanor embraced it with him. The One of the reasons that they were going on crusade was effectively to protect Antioch, where her um, uncle stroke cousin um, Raymond um, was the king. Um, and so she would have wanted to go probably from family reasons anyway. It was a great adventure. And since Louis was going to be gone probably for two years and they since still didn't have um, any sons, it was really incumbent upon Eleanor to go with him and try also to get the blessing of the church and of God on their marriage. So they took the cross in a wonderful um, event uh, where Bernard of Clairvaux preached the cross and there were so many recruits to the crusade that he effectively had to tear up his own clothes to make further crosses for people to stitch to their garments. Um, and they went off on the crusade and it was the most extraordinary catastrophe on so many fronts. Um, their relationship got no better. Louis was a terrible war leader. Um, he, he hadn't been trained for it. And when they got past Constantinople and were um, journeying effectively across Asia Minor towards Antioch, and they got into military difficulties, um, Louis did not react well. Uh, Louis allowed a situation to occur whereby the entire party was ambushed. He then, when the party limped into the nearest port, ended up leaving most of his army behind because he couldn't get transport for them. Um, and when they got to Antioch, by the time they got to Antioch, I, the marriage seemed to be very close to dead. She, uh, Eleanor, then ended up spending a lot of time unburdening herself to her cousin. Um, Louis hated this. They fell out. She said she wanted a divorce or she wanted to stay behind and separate from him. He refused and effectively kidnapped her and took her with him to Jerusalem. Um, the rest of the crusade went no better. They headed back to, towards France together after all of this. Just to add insult to injury, they are on the way back from the crusade, after this catastrophic crusade, um, they drift into a battle between effectively Byzantine Empire and pirates. They are caught by pirates and Eleanor and her, her women are held for a few days. Um, they're, they're eventually reconciled 
reunited and proceed back to France via a visit to the Pope in Rome, which leads to one of the most extraordinary episodes where he effectively does some marriage guidance, puts them to bed together and says, I essentially instruct you to heal your marriage. And that leads to the conception of their second daughter, Alice. But underneath all of the attempts to reconcile, uh, the Crusades has effectively seen the end of the marriage. I find it so interesting already that we are we are barely even into the the meat of her story, and we've already had you know the Crusades and this pig and pirates. It's it's there's so much happening. I know. Okay, so now they've got two children, right? We've got two children. And I know that we said that there is an issue because neither of these two children at this point are sons. Now, she the the second daughter was conceived, um, and I I think I already know the answer to this question, but let's put it out there for the listeners: Did this actually heal their relationship? Absolutely not. No. Um, Right. I, I don't. I don't know. You know, there's very there's very little evidence of um, what went on when they got back. But it seems that Abbot Suga, who had remained Louis's main advisor, continued to advocate them staying married, partly because he'd organised the the marriage in the first place, partly because he realised that if the marriage ended, Louis would lose Eleanor's lands, which were, you know, a money spinner and very good for Louis's power. So he and the Pope together had tried to encourage them to stay together. As soon as Abbot Suga died, however, Louis convened a court and sought an annulment. Um, he... It, the the conventional wisdom was that the absence of children or the absence of male children would be down to the woman's fault. It would mean that she was too cold or too damp or something. Um, it, it's never the man's fault in the medieval church's view. And the reason so their marriage at this point. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say the reason that he sought an annulment, um, of course, is and this is where we come back into the point that we mentioned earlier. There was always the scope for getting rid of the marriage because they were too closely related. So as a matter of church law, they should never have been married. Um, and so Louis had essentially cast iron grounds for getting the marriage stopped. So when they got the marriage annulled on the basis of this is something that I feel like I have to practice saying <laughs> because I wrote it down in my notes. But consanguinity, is that the right way to pronounce oh, it? Meaning that they were too closely. OK, perfect. <laughs> I would never want to be on this podcast and not say the words correctly. But so that means that they were too closely related so they were granted this annulment. And when they separated, I hate this part of the story. When they separated, what happened to their two daughters? They stayed with their father. They were his property. That's the way the law looked at it in those days. Did they get to see their mother at all? Or she just had to move out and never see them again? What was the what was the what was the custody arrangement? There was no such thing as a as a sort of shared custody. The custody right. arrangement was they were the property of the father. And they stayed with the father. If if the father happened to be friends with, you know, the the mother, 
or whoever the mother married, then they might end up seeing that they were their true parent. But in this case, um, that would not happen because Eleanor did not do what Louis would have wanted her to do and marry somebody that he advised. She went off and took matters into her own hands. So there is no positive evidence that Eleanor ever saw her daughters again. I believe that she did much later, but you really had to look very hard for that. Certainly in their childhood. Oh, let's come back to that. She she didn't see them in their growing up years at all after that. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, so then now you had mentioned she she took things into her own hands. So here we are now. She's about to marry someone named Henry. Tell us who this Henry is. Okay, so this Henry is Count of Anjou. Um now, I mean, it's it's actually one of those things. I said that Eleanor was like a walking title deed. She had to get married really fast or somebody would force marriage her. You know, she would basically be kidnapped, raped and told, right, marry me or you're dishonored for life. Um, and indeed, sort of on her journey from Louis' court to her own lands, there was an attempt by a certain Geoffrey of Anjou to kidnap her and rape her and marry her. But luckily she found out about it and she didn't fall into the trap. So she had to marry real quickly. Uh, She had to marry somebody whose land sort of made sense for her. So her choices were essentially either marry in Spain or marry one of her own minor lords or marry somebody whose land bordered hers to the north. And the solution which her family had traditionally taken on this one was marry into the Anjou family. There were lots of marriages between the the Aquitaine family and the Anjou family. And that is what Eleanor did. She married the eldest son of the Count of Anjou, Henry, who was also the son of Matilda, formerly the Empress, um, the daughter of Henry I of England. Now, just another aside, because we always get this question, um, and I don't know if there's any truth to it or not, but maybe you could help us. Did she really have an affair with Henry's father, Geoffrey? Almost certainly not. This is one of these stories that you can trace when it first appears. And the time when it first appears is after Eleanor and Henry have, spoiler alert here, fallen out very badly. And he is looking for a divorce. There is no suggestion of it beforehand. If you actually follow the itinerary of both Eleanor and Geoffrey of Anjou, there basically is no time when it could have happened. Um, Unless somehow they had a very quick fling in the couple of days he was at court shortly before she and Louis um, went their separate ways which seems incredibly unlikely since there was sort of serious political negotiation going on. And also that was probably the point at which she and Henry talked about getting married once her annulment came through. So now she she gets married because uh, you said that typically they, they do like to marry into the Anjou family. So there she is. And then she ends up the Queen of England. How does that happen? Because it's not like her father-in-law was the king of England, correct? There oh, was quite. This, there was some other. Yeah, so it was all it was all you know wildly complicated. So I mean, 
basically the story is that Henry I of England um, only had one son. Um, his son died in the catastrophe known as the White Ship Accident, uh, where a ship carrying basically most of the young nobles of England went down and um, none of them could swim. So Henry I was left with a daughter, Matilda, who he'd married into the um, essentially German empire. So she was known as the Empress. He got his nobles to agree that she could be Queen of England. But then when he died, they reneged on this and they installed a chap called Stephen, who was the brother of Theobald of Champagne. They tried to get Theobald of Champagne, but he said he was too busy. Um, uh, But there there continued to be massive disagreements, a.k.a. civil war, about whether it should be Stephen or Matilda. So throughout this period, um, Matilda and Stephen are having periodic battles and campaigns in England. Um, And so Henry is the son of Matilda. And as matters progress and his side gets the better of the military situation in France and to some extent the better of the military situation in England, And as Stephen's eldest son dies, it becomes more and more likely that Henry becomes king. And very shortly after Eleanor has married Henry, um, that is in fact agreed that Henry will become king of England when Stephen dies. And then Stephen really conveniently dies within a year. What a happy little coincidence that she got to marry and become queen again. Absolutely. Now, before we continue well, with her life, I mean, this is this is one yes, of the absolutely. In, in which she is so extraordinary. You can't really find anybody else who's managed that particular double. Exactly. And again, I keep I just keep thinking this as we're talking is that we're not even you know into it all yet. Where she's not even into her elderly years. There's there's not even everything covered, and yet we've covered so much, and so much has happened to her, both good and bad. Because again, here's here's a positive thing. She's now the the queen of England. And my next question for you is not necessarily about Eleanor, but it is something that we have to talk about when we when we are looking at Henry the Second, and that's the murder of Thomas Becket. So if you could give us a little bit of an idea about the situation and how that came about, and then maybe we'll weave Eleanor into the story and see how what role she played, or even if you have any idea of her, her feelings about the situation, or if she had any reactions that we know about. Yeah. So the Thomas Beckett story is a phenomenally involved one. Essentially, when... Eleanor first came to England, Henry had just recently made friends with an incredibly promising young quasi-cleric. He, was, he wasn't actually a priest, but he was in the household of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And his name was Thomas Becket, and he was the son of a merchant. And he was, by all accounts, a remarkable, attractive, um, very, very talented, very driven uh, person. Henry and he formed a very close alliance. He made Thomas his chancellor when he became king, and they worked hand in glove for um, a number of years. The problem came along when the Archbishop of Canterbury died, and 
We've mentioned already the problems that kings were having with their relationship with the church. Henry had been having some problems with his relationship with the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he thought, I've got a brilliant idea. I shall make my mate Thomas, Archbishop of Canterbury, as well as Chancellor. I know we work well together. He knows all about the job because he used to work for the Archbishop of Canterbury. What could go wrong? And the answer to what went wrong was that Thomas Beckett was never a man to do anything by halves. And when he became Archbishop of Canterbury, he completely changed his attitude. He wasn't king side anymore. He was church side. And he was more difficult than the previous Archbishop of Canterbury. And he he was more intrans- intransigent on every dispute between the crown and the church. Um, and this led to an enormous, long, complicated, involved set of arguments um, many of which turn on, you know, tiny little phrases with, within documents as to what the church might agree to. Um, he exiled Beckett. He was finally persuaded to let Beckett back, but the relationship had become incredibly sour. Um, and finally, um, Beckett did something. It really matters not what by this stage. And over the sort of Christmas holidays, when Henry got to hear about it, he said something along the lines of, why doesn't one of you useless so-and-sos do something about this priest who is really, really getting on my nerves? The phrase which is always reported is, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Whatever it was he said, somebody took him literally, and they went off to Canterbury, and they butchered Thomas Beckett in Canterbury Cathedral. And this was the most enormous scandal. Now, how did Eleanor feel about Thomas Beckett? Um, how was she involved in the argument? It's hard to tell. Traditionally, she's been portrayed as not liking Beckett, but I found no, no evidence of that. She came from a background where her family had always relied heavily on their churchmen as their main advisors. So she saw would see nothing wrong with that paradigm. She'd also lived with it with Abbot Suger in France. Um, there are one or two indications, in fact, that she and her mother-in-law, Matilda, actually tried to broker peace and Certainly, one of Beckett's advisors suggested trying to ask Eleanor to sort one particular row out. Um, obviously, that wasn't successful. But I think my own view is that she was far more church side than Henry and that her, her not being fully on Henry's side in relation to this argument was one of the things that led to her and Henry um, basically losing touch in their marriage. It was one of the things which meant that the marriage ultimately failed. Prior to their marriage ultimately failing, though, they did have quite a large amount of children. Yes. So I think they had eight children in all. Is that correct? Yes, I, I think that's right. 
Um, yeah. Okay, so we don't have to go through then all eight of them. <laughs> you don't need to tell us every single one. But there were a few key uh, children of theirs right, well, that are no, going to become that, figures that we talk about I'm later. sorry, I, I really take objection to this one because everybody always says the key ones sure, okay. are the kings. And they aren't. They're just our men. <laughs> I actually see... No, 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 no. We can... I do not feel... We can absolutely talk about any of the women or any of the yeah. stories let's definitely so, talk about so whichever children she's got uh, they they have a bunch of really interesting children and the boys get all the headlines because they become you know henry the young king richard the first coeur de Lyon, and evil king john um so they their stories are obvious, but she has these great daughters as well. Uh, she has her eldest daughter is Matilda, who becomes Duchess of Saxony and acts as regent um, for her husband. She has, I think, my personal favorite, Leonor, who marries the King of Castile and becomes um, the um, the ancestor of Eleanor of Castile and hugely influential in, in a very, very powerful line of female um, rulers um, in Spain and in France. Uh, and then there is the heroic but tragic uh, Joanna, who becomes first queen of Sicily. Uh, then she goes on crusade with uh, Richard the Lionheart. And then she becomes Countess of Toulouse uh, and then dies in rather tragic circumstances, very young. Um, but so she has the, a wonderful portfolio of fascinating children who all do interesting things, apart from the very first one, who William, who dies very young. Oh, I love that. Thank you. So, so she's got, but, you know, as you mentioned, she, so she's one of the most interesting women and lives this interesting life. So it's only natural then that her, her daughters would have to, you know, do go on to do noteworthy things on their own as well. So thank you for pointing that out to us. No, well, it's, it's just, you know, Eleanor's even had books written about her, you know, Eleanor and the Four Kings and things. And it, it skews the story so much to the male side of the equation. And people concentrate on the bad relationship that the sons had with Henry and will get into the rebellion and say, Eleanor's such a bad mother. But actually, when you look at the story, she was a very involved mother and with her daughters with whom she got to spend more time because they weren't taken out of her household so young. You can see that she had incredibly good relationships. They all turned to her in their hour of need. And she she effectively trains them to be great queens. So when you look at Leonora Castile's line, you see that she, Leonora Castile has um, daughters Blanche and Berengaria. Uh, Blanche becomes Queen Blanche of Castile, often regarded as one of the great kings of France. Um, and Berengaria, known as Berengaria the Great, um, was regent of Castile for her son Ferdinand, who becomes Saint Ferdinand. So, you know, Eleanor has had huge influence on other countries, hence my calling the um, book as one of its titles, Mother of Empires, because through the female line, she is incredibly influential. She is. And and now I want to have a whole separate podcast about Eleanor of Aquitaine's daughters, <laughs> but I guess we'll move on. Another day. Right. So, okay. So you meant, sorry? Another day. Another time. Exactly. Right. Um, 
But now if we turn, see, and again, now I don't even want to turn to the boys, right? I don't want to, I don't even want to, I want to just talk about the girls, but we are going to move our focus now to the conventional story. Young Henry. Yes. Right. The traditional stories that take us. And I don't, I actually haven't heard. That's very interesting that you mentioned that she was thought of as, you know, a bad mother or not necessarily involved with her children because, um, as we move on with the stories of the rebellions and such, she's definitely part of that and involved with her kids. But let's talk about young Henry now. So how was she involved with the plot against her husband? Okay, so um, the traditional view is that she revolted against Henry. Um, My own view is that the evidence best supports the the theory that she sided with her children, but it was really young Henry who started it. So when you look and see where the rebellion starts and with whom it starts, it starts in a location which is associated with him. It starts with people with whom he is dealing. It doesn't start where Eleanor is. Ultimately, as it flares up, she effectively has to pick a side. You know, her sons are fighting against her husband. She doesn't get to be neutral particularly not when she is effectively acting as regent of one portion of Henry's lands. So she is faced with a situation where she has to say, sons or husband, she picks sons, perfectly legitimate. Um, And it's actually no worse than, say, I don't know, William the Conqueror's wife did, but that's another story too. Um, But when you look at the accounts of the rebellion, the people who were best placed, the chroniclers who were best placed to call it, never overtly say that she rebelled. They um, basically say that she didn't support Henry. But the net result was, you know, as far as he was concerned, if you're not with me, you're against me. And he charges in and he takes her prisoner. And she remains effectively prisoner from 1174 until his death in 1189. Um, And, you know, you might have thought that that was it. Her life was over. She was she was basically about 50 when she was taken prisoner. And in those days, 15 years, you know, her life would have been over. Right. That's what he thought. It is. And yet we still have some time with her life. Yeah. But what was her imprisonment like? Was she really treated as a prisoner or did she have any of the perks of of being queen while she was while she was a prisoner? We don't know a lot. I mean, we we basically only get to see the accounts and bits of the accounts at that. Um she wouldn't have been, you know, in solitary confinement and in chains and so forth. She would have been in under house arrest, effectively, at different points at different places. Whenever there was unrest or one of the kids was playing up rough, then her conditions of of um, being held would be tightened somewhat. Her correspondence would probably be stopped. It looks like actually she had visitors. So, for example, after she is freed in 1189, William Marshall, who goes to tell her she's free, says that she was looking better than she had been, which suggests he'd seen her before. 
Um, we also know that towards the end of the period, after the death of young Henry, and after Matilda and her family have to flee Saxony, she spends quite a lot of time with Matilda in, in relative freedom. Um, we know that she had essentially a household with young women in. It's almost like she had a finishing school or she had foster daughters. There's definitely somebody who calls herself a foster daughter of Eleanor who would have been with her in this period. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't terrible, but she was far away from the main sphere of activity. Having said that, she became effectively the consistent member of the royal family in England. So if you think that at this point, Henry is governing essentially two countries, the French lands, which are extensive, and England, and at, at all times, you need to have a member of the royal family in England. Although he tends to have one of the sons there, Eleanor is there consistently. And there is a real sense when you look into the later records that she was regarded by the English nobility as being the consistent royal person. And so it seems that they gave her some status, even if Henry wouldn't have. So once Henry passes, she is then released or freed or however you... I I think that using the term free does kind of make you think that she was in some sort of chains or locked away. But so she was effectively freed or released Yes. When her son became king. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, it's, it's actually quite interesting because it, it seems that she freed herself in the sense that William Marshall was sent to bring the news that she was to be regarded as being at liberty. And he found her already ruling with the court. Uh, so as soon as the news came of Henry's death, she basically simply assumed the reins of government. And this is what I mean about the English nobles effectively having accepted her as as the ruler um, because they were used to having her around and doubtless they were used to interacting with her. So Richard obviously had rather a lot to do and he was, you know, interested in going on crusade. Um, He let her organise his coronation. He let her continue to call herself Queen of England. So she doesn't style herself as mother of the king she continues to style herself as Queen of England and Duchess of Aquitaine. And when he goes on crusade, he leaves her um, really with full power. There are justiciars left in formal control of the country, but nobody is in any doubt that the senior authority figure is Eleanor. Now, obviously, she has to go off and do various things, like she had to go off and pick up Richard's bride and take her... Um, essentially to him um, in um, so that they could go off on, on crusade. Um, but she is there and thereabouts throughout the crusade. And then when Richard, unfortunately, stroke um, rather stupidly, gets himself taken prisoner, she is the person who stops the French from invading the country. She commands defences. She collects the enormous ransom which has to be paid to get Richard back. She goes actually to finalise the negotiations with the emperor and she brings Richard back. Um, So she then has a a huge role in the early part of Richard's 
uh, Richard's reign. Once Richard is back from his imprisonment, she does take her first retirement uh, for the rest of his reign. But she, for the early part, she is, a, in effect, the ruler of England. Now, was that unusual for the time, given that so she, she of course, is a woman. She's not a young woman by any means at this point. And you mentioned that his wife went with him on the crusade. So were people, you know, was that seen as unusual if if his wife was actually not seen as or styled as the queen um, yeah. and more his, his mother was. Yeah, poor old Berengaria. She gets a really, really tough time because, of course, she she comes in after Richard is already king and Eleanor has been effectively ruling England and she owns all of Aquitaine, of course, so she has enormous power and, and knowledge. Um, and she then goes off and spends some time with, with Richard. And when she comes back... You know, nobody, the marriage already hasn't worked. Um, nobody is giving her any power at all. She is effectively, you know, pushed to one side. Um, is it unusual for Eleanor to exercise that amount of power? Yes and no. Um, just before Eleanor was born, Spain was effectively ruled by a queen called Araka. She was known as Queen of All the Spains. Um, and she was a a phenomenal character who, you know, commanded armies and so forth. Um, one of Eleanor's cousins was the Queen of Aragon. Um, so there were, and, and in, in Provence, there was quite a strong matrilineal tendency where certainly widowed women, so women of Eleanor's age, would be the heads of the family. So it's by no means unprecedented. I think it's it, it was very unusual in Northern Europe, and it was becoming more unusual across Europe. But women had actually done quite well for power in the very early medieval period. And we're now on the line towards really stripping women of power that proceeds throughout the medieval period. Um, and you only start to see women coming back into power as you enter the Tudor era, actually. Um, so it's it's quite an interesting dynamic. Um, but yes, I mean, Eleanor is, is doing something quite unusual. One of the things that you don't see when you look in the records is people saying, this is astonishing, this is unprecedented, this is, you know, this can't be happening. And for example, the, the Jerusalem was traditionally or predominantly ruled by women. When Eleanor was there, um, it was being ruled by Queen Melisande. So she's doing something unusual for Northern Europe and less so for Southern Europe, I think. But still noteworthy for sure. Oh, yeah. So... Now we move, yeah. So we move on now. Poor Richard and Berengaria. So Richard passes, and they they don't have any children. And now Eleanor is again the mother of the King of England because her son John now takes over. Yeah. Did he involve her the same way that Richard did? Well, two things here. First of all, you are saying, of course, John becomes king. And of course, he became king. But it was by no means clear that he would be king. 
because there was another contender. And that was the son. Oh, let's hear about the other contender. Yeah. So, so the, the other contender uh, was the son of Eleanor's son, Geoffrey, um, who had become Count of Brittany. And he, of course, died before he got any chance to be king himself. But he left behind him a son called Arthur. Now, according to one view of succession law of that period, the correct heir was Geoffrey's son because Geoffrey was older than John, and it's a male line. Um, now, there is pretty good evidence to suggest that the decision maker in who should inherit was Eleanor. Um, there is a really interesting bit in the um, story of William Marshall, where it said that he and Hubert Walter sat down and kind of debated it and said, oh, it should definitely be John rather than Arthur. And there were all sorts of good reasons for it being John rather than Arthur. But um, the one sense which comes through that is that Eleanor may well have been sent them a letter saying, this is who I'm going for. I want you to back John. In any event, they do back John. Um, and Eleanor, although she is in retirement, she is, of course, by now um, getting on somewhat. Um, she She's into her 70s. She is very supportive of John. She goes on a tour around her lands to drum up support for him to make sure that people don't go for Arthur. Um, she is, in fact, herself sort of shoring up the defences and is attacked in one of her castles by Arthur and the King of France and has to be rescued by John. Um, and she does homage to the King of France to secure John's succession um, she negotiates with various people who've fallen out with John. She is consistently supporting him right up until her death. In fact, one of the one of the most remarkable bits of support she did, which I shouldn't leave out of the story, is one of the um, ways in which John finally um, sorted out his relationship with the King of France was that it was agreed that one of Eleanor's granddaughters by her daughter, Leonor, so one of the Castilian girls, should marry the King of France to give a blood tie between um, John's family and the King of France. And it was a question of which daughter. So Eleanor, by this stage, very close to 80 years old, is sent off to go to Castile to pick the right daughter to be the future King of France. Um, and she she does do that. And on their way back, one of the people they're traveling with is assassinated right in front of her. You know, life is never dull for Eleanor. So she's she is taking really quite serious steps to support John all the way through. And now at this ripe old age of 80 plus, she's still there. She's still supporting her son, John. So how does she eventually pass away uh, at, because I mean, speaking of unusual things, the fact that she's lived this long and experienced so many things is just shocking, I think, for the time. And even when we talk about it now, that's, that's 
very unusual for somebody to have lived that long. So what was her, what did she actually end up dying of and, you know, who was around and what, what did the, that whole situation look like when she, when she did eventually pass? Okay. So by this stage, she retires first to the Abbey of Fontrevaux um, during Richard's reign, and then she comes out again to help John, and then she retires again to Fontrevaux. The chances are that's where she was when she died. We don't know because there are two conflicting stories. One says she was at Fontrevaux, and one says she was at Poitiers. She may have been at Poitiers, again, drumming up um, defences because the story had just leaked out that John had probably killed Arthur and various of the uh, vassals were up in arms. So it may be that she was at Poitiers when she died. Um, the, the account given by Fontrevaux simply says, you know, that she effectively died peacefully. And there's a letter from her in the final year or so where she's trying to smooth people down on behalf of John, where she says, you know, she's not been well, but she's feeling better. So there is this sense that in the last couple of years, you know, her strength starts to fail, which is not unreasonable considering her great age and all that she has lived through. And that um, I think the the phrase is that her life flickers out like a lamp. So she dies quite quietly and peacefully and, One of the lovely things, though, about her last years is that um, we know that her granddaughter by her daughter, Alice, the second daughter she has with Louis of France, um, is in Fontrevaux with her um, right up towards the end. She she is a nun at Fontrevaux. And when Eleanor is doing some of her later travellings, you can see her as a witness to some of the charters. So she and Eleanor become very, very close. But what's even more thrilling in a sense is we know that Eleanor had this beautiful book um, that she commissioned at the time that she was with her daughter Matilda in the 1280s. Um, And we know that that found its way into not that family of that Alice and not into John's family, not into any of her family, not into the Castilian family, not into any of her family by Henry. That book ends up um, actually with the line of her eldest daughter, Marie. And it seems likely that Marie and Marie's children come to visit Eleanor in her retirement in Fontrevaux. So she gets that reconciliation and she gets to meet her descendants through her other daughters, which I think is really lovely. And so when you look in the the Psalter of Eleanor of Aquitaine, it's, it's called, you can see the names of all these people who held the Psalter and they're all from that side of the family. What a great little bit of information that I think people don't know. And I think that that's so nice to wrap everything up like that and bring everything back full circle to know that she was reunited with, you know, her daughter's family from her first marriage and that she that she did go peacefully because she had really quite a remarkable life. And and uh, she really left a mark on 
on Europe. And I think that's probably why, you know, people refer to her as the grandmother of Europe, because she really had uh, involvement in a lot of different things. So what do you think is your theory or maybe your speculation on what you believe to be Eleanor's legacy or her most kind of noteworthy contribution to England's history? Well, speaking as somebody who's a shipping lawyer by profession, um, most of my friends would say that her greatest contribution is introducing shipping law to England, but I'm I'm not going to go with that one. Um, I think she's got two real contributions and they're not particularly English, but I think the contribution that I've spoken about of her daughters. Um, so you see, her daughter Matilda has a son who becomes the emperor, um, and her granddaughter Blanche becomes one of the greatest king, kings of France or queen of France, who is regarded as a king of France and the mother of a saint. So she she has an incredibly strong influence on the histories of France and Spain as well as in England. But actually, you know what? I think her greatest um, legacy is the legacy that she has of inspiring women right up until today. And, you know, we started by saying, what a woman. And that's the point. You know, she has inspired in so many different ways. Sometimes the inspiration has come from stories which aren't entirely true, but she's given us inspiration. And even when you just stick entirely to the truth, how much have we covered that can inspire? I have to say for myself, as a woman of a certain age, I find her particularly inspiring as somebody who, you know, whose life actually becomes more full, more powerful, more interesting as she gets older. Um, And I find her a really wonderful person to think about in that respect. I love that. I think that's such a great point. And I think that, you know, kudos to you for being able to appreciate those, those bits that some people might overlook. In, in Eleanor's life. So that's great. And now again, I want to thank everybody for listening. And thank you, of course, to Sarah Cockrell for joining us today with and giving us all this extensive knowledge that you have on Eleanor of Aquitaine. And I hope that this has intrigued everybody and sparked some interest in picking up your book. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your book that's about Eleanor and where we can find it and when? Yeah. So my book is Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queen of France and England, Mother of Empires. And having listened, you'll understand why I called it that. Um, it's out in hardback at the moment. It came out in 2019. And I believe it will be out in paperback sometime around July this year. Um, You can get it from, I think, Book Depository, who ship internationally for free. Obviously, the hardbacks on Amazon. Um, And I hope that people will enjoy it. I don't doubt that they will. That's it's going to be a great it's great. So I hope everybody picks that up again. That is Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queen of France and England, Mother of Empires by Sarah Cockrell. And with that, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. It's been so much fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.